I'm just going to start the recording. There we go. Hi. Oh my God. So I'm Karina Robles Barin. I'm the author of The Accidental Malay, which is my first novel. But my day job really is running a, a small hotel and a restaurant and a farm in Langkawi, um, which is a small island in the northern part of Malaysia. Karina Robles Barin won Singapore's prestigious Epigram Book Award in 2022 and got a publishing contract for her manuscript, The Accidental Malay. It went on to critical acclaim and stirred controversy about race and religion. I was born in the Klang Valley, which is, you know, uh, where, around Kuala Lumpur, just a suburb. But I moved to Langkawi about 10 years ago. No, hang on. 12 years ago? Yeah, to start up with a business and just, you know, change the lifestyle. And what then prompted you to write a book, to go from that to putting a story together? Well, actually, I moved to Langkawi naively thinking that I could write a book. <laughs> but nobody told me, hey, if you're going to run a business, you don't have time to do anything else, right? So <laughs> no writing happened. Before that, I was writing short stories and I was publishing, uh, you know, minimally because I don't try very hard. I'm a bit lazy. <laughs> so nothing happened. And then, and then when the pandemic occurred and the whole world stopped, I realized, okay, now I can write my book. So it was something you'd always wanted to do. Has this desire to write been there since you were a kid? Was that something you grew up with? Yeah, yes, yes. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer when I wanted to go to college. I thought about doing journalism, but because I was under a government scholarship program, they didn't offer communications as a degree. So I ended up majoring in political science because like my dad said, if you're going to write, you might as well find uh, study a subject so you can write about it with some intelligence. I thought it was pretty wise advice. So that's what I ended up doing. But when I came back, the government was actually trimming down the civil service. Mm -hmm. So they let all the scholarship students go into the private sector. And I ended up working in PR, which is basically the career I had for oh, more than 20 years. So on the other side of the fence from you. <laughs> right. I was right? going to say, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole very different style of storytelling, but it's the same Correct. Kind of thing, really. It's, it's writing, but yeah, it, it's very different. It's a lot more kind of, curated I suppose yes <laughs> when you finally came down to it this writing of a novel I mean what was that like I wanted to tell this story because the the essence of the story that I wrote is is very close to close to me so my story is about a Malaysian Chinese woman who discovers she's Malay and in in, in Malaysia that has some very interesting implications because once you're Malay, you are Muslim. There's no two two ways about it, you know, and that can um, potentially result in some big changes in your life. Uh, constitutionally, you know, you you're a different entity now. You are, you know, certain parts of your life will then be subject to Sharia law, for example, um, which you know non-Muslims are not subject to. So we have a we have a two uh, a dual system here in this country, and I wanted to write the story because I come from a mixed background. So my father is Malay, uh, actually he's only half Malay because we we found out later on that his mother was actually a Chinese woman that was adopted into a Malay family, right? Um, and my mother is from the Philippines, but the way things work here, if you're even a quarter Malay or you know yes. you're a little bit Malay, you're defined as Malay. And so, you know, a, a big other part of your heritage is sort of disregarded. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to write a story that that touched on those issues, but not about me. So, you know, my protagonist is a very different person, uh, but same issue. It was almost like a reverse, right? You just yes, reversed yeah. it and she was Chinese and then discovering Correct. that, right. 
Do you find that identity really does play a role, very big one, obviously, in how, I mean, it's a very big one, uh, a big part of your story, but at the same time, has it been a big part of your life in general? I mean, obviously, in a society like Malaysia, I think it might be more pronounced than in other places where there's a bit more uh, intermingling of the ethnicities in that country. I was very lucky when I was growing up. I I grew up in a very sort of uh, diverse uh, community. I think because my parents themselves maintained pretty mm. a pretty diverse group of friends. They're both academics, right. um, and I grew up, you know, surrounded by academia um, and also, you know, my dad's golfing buddies who could be, <laughs> you know, all shapes, sizes, colors, but. Uh, I, I think in a country like mine, it would have been easy for me to just be Malay uh, and stop there, right, and, and conform to that. But I, because you know, there's a difference between your private and public space, basically. So in the public sphere, I'm I'm seen as Malay, but privately at home, of course, you know, mom is the one that is doing most of the caregiving. So there's all these kind of Filipino influences that, you know, seep into to your life. And, you know, your comfort foods are a bit different from other people. You know, the songs you grew up hearing are different. Uh, so it's a decision every time as to how much of that you want people to see or not, right? And how much of that you want to kind of push out to people and say, this is also part of me. Because I can easily just not. It's, it's really my choice. It's almost immediately the there's a division in your own identity. Because as you said, the yeah. public and private self can be two very distinct separate entities. How then, yeah. how then are you able to live uniting that? Or are you just very clear um, about what your lines are? And oh, this um, doesn't cross here and this doesn't go there. And well, okay, so I, I always use this little descriptor, right? It's like walking on a tightrope coated with broken glass. So if you if you understand, you know, how people go into kite competitions, they, they coat those little string with broken glass, very fine broken. It's like that. So, you know, you, you're going to cut your feet if you keep walking on the line, but then if you fall off, then you, you might break something um, or not. But I think over time, you just either get better at bracing yourself for the fall or, or, you know, you get thicker soles. So right. that's how you sort of cope. And was this the story then that you wanted to tell the first one out of the gate? Is this, Did you always yeah. know that? Okay. Yeah, I, I did always want to tell a story that touched on these issues, but not in the way, you know, obviously it affected me because I'm somebody who grew up with a dual, you know, uh, heritage or that, that kind of tension. I chose a different way to tell the story, but the story still remains... Uh, one about a woman who is confronted with having to choose or at least make sacrifices in terms of which parts of her identity she wants to take, right, or claim. Do you feel authors have to stick to that in a sense, like uh, the truth of what they know or the truth of their experiences, and that is all that they should be writing fiction on? You know, everybody now with their very strict definitions of what should be considered PC, and writers have to be of a certain definition if they're going to write a tale about that, which would then mean like somebody like Shakespeare, for example, shouldn't have written Romeo and Juliet. I mean, what, I, what yeah. are your thoughts on that whole own voices narratives? Yeah, this has been a big thing. Uh, I, I was at the Ubud Writers Festival recently and the whole issue of cultural misappropriation came up. I mean, I was on a panel actually about that. So I think it's a thorny issue and I think, you know, there's, there's several layers to it, right? I think it's too simplistic to say you need to just conform to, to you know, writing the world that you know. 
because then you know you you wouldn't have gotten things like the remains of the day from Kazuo Ishiguro, a Japanese man writing about the most quintessential of of British things. I mean, it's a fantastic piece of work. Yes. I think the problem the problem arises when when folks feel that you are telling their story on their behalf. Right. Right. And and especially if you, the person telling the story is higher up in the power pyramid. For example, like that, that uh, the novel American Mud, that got a lot of flack because it was a white woman telling Latina stories, and you know, and I mean Latinx stories, and the Latinx community was saying, "We have these stories. You're just not letting us tell them. You let a white person tell our story because she's white, or, or you know." So that's when it becomes problematic. When you were writing your book, because you wrote it in English, am yes. I correct to presume that? Did you have an audience in mind? Did you think I am writing this for Malaysians or I am writing this just for me to get it out? Was there a particular audience? And did you at some point want to get it out to the Western consumers of stories, of literature? I, I knew off the bat that I think it, that it would be a stretch trying to get a Western agent interested because uh, I, I say this a lot. I think the Western world still has... Um, some stereotypes or assumptions of what constitutes Malaysian literature in the same way it would have for Filipino literature or, you know, Japanese literature or African literature. So with Malaysia, I always say it's one of three things, right? You either have ghosts or you have, you know, it's post-colonial World War II historical fiction, or you have migrants going to their countries, right? Migrants from Malaysia. You know, right. If you don't have any of those three, it becomes very difficult because uh, a lot of times I think Western publishers don't understand enough about our region to be able to gauge what would be, you know, what in terms of contemporary fiction would be appealing to today's audience. Um, what is zeitgeist or, or not, right? Uh, so I set out right. I, I had to cross that line when I was writing the book. And, and I made the decision, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I do not want to pander um, because for me, this book is very personal and it needs to be a book for Malaysians. So this is this is my primary audience. It is Malaysian. I understand I'm writing in English, which means my audience, again, is limited because, you know, the, the number of people who read um, English language is smaller, of course, than Malay or maybe even Chinese. But it is the language I'm most comfortable writing in. Uh, because, you know, it's the language I use for commerce and for all sorts of things and even at home. But I was very clear about one other thing, apart from it just being Malaysian, and I knew it was going to be urban, suburban because of the English factor. I also wanted to try and write a book that people who don't normally read <laughs> would read. So I didn't want to end up with a manuscript that was so too, you know, sort right. of highbrow or esoteric. I wanted something that, you know, would be more mass appealing. Right. Because I felt that the issue needed, you know, more air. I mean, if I made it too sort of intellectual, you know, only very, you're preaching to the converter, basically. Yeah. And that's why there's a, obviously there's a very strong element. There's a love story yeah. in it as well. And yeah. in a sense, yes, there's enough there for somebody who doesn't want to think about the difficult issues to just keep reading for the love story. Yeah, but at the same time, because yeah. those issues are so fundamental to the story, it, it, you know, it seeps into their consciousness at some level. It doesn't have to be kind of in your face. <laughs> yes. Do you feel then that writers from this part of the world should be very conscious of the fact that we are at a disadvantage when it comes to telling our stories in the language that is technically borrowed for this part of the world, even though many mm. of us might think in it, it might think in English. I, I'm the same way as you, where I wrote in English yeah. because it's the language I'm most at ease with. 
Yep. Uh, yes and no. So I think yes, when it comes to attempting to write a story that will then be read by the folks in your country, right? So for me, like people who are more conversant about Hassa Malaysia or Chinese, for example, in Indian, and do not read in English, then yes, it's an issue. But at the same time, because you're writing in English, which is more of a lingua franca, there is a greater likelihood that people, you know, the English-speaking world, which is even much larger than the, the reading world in your country, at least mine, because my country is very small, there's a much larger chance for exposure on, on, on that end. So it's always a toss-up, right? Which which one do you want? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's hopes that, of course, eventually that things will get translated either way. And that right. is beginning to happen. And you put it into an epigram book competition. Yes, yes. In the beginning, when I finished writing, the, so I finished the book in 2020, I did the edits. And I told myself, I'm going to start attempting to write to Western agents. You know, just just to kind of go through the process. How long did it take you to write the book to begin with? Writing was the actual drafting. The first draft was probably about 14 weeks. So I was a little bit surprised it didn't. Yeah, I was surprised it didn't take that long. But then, you know, I I sat on it and I edited it maybe a couple more times, you know, major edits. And then... And then I felt it was ready to at least send it out for queries. Mm -hmm. So I started querying from, I think... January 21, I guess, through to, and I told myself, okay, if I do not get an agent by August, which was the epigram deadline, then I will submit to epigram because then at least I've tried, right? So I, I did get a couple of requests for folds, but then at the same time, they came back and said, you know, we enjoy it, but we're not sure it's the right fit, which is what I expected already because I knew they wouldn't, they wouldn't understand how to market the story. Um, so then I submitted to epigram in August that year. And then the following year in January, they announced the results. Has that helped a lot in the interest in terms of the agents as well? Have you kind of gone back to agents and said, well, it's now won an award or has that not mattered? Okay. So, I mean, of course, well, where readership is concerned, it has helped tremendously. I mean, in Malaysia, sales have been good. I mean, Epigram does not typically, you know, they, they're regional publishers, so their footprint is a bit limited in terms of distribution. The hard copy book is only available in Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei. They've now released the digital copy, which is now makes it available, you know, worldwide. But, um, it, the book's been very well received in Malaysia, at least in terms of sales. Um, and I understand even in Brunei, <laughs> which I, yeah, I didn't that surprises that. you. Yeah, it, it does surprise me because I didn't think that this issue was so uh, was as interesting to Brunei because I always had the impression that their society is a bit more homogenous, a bit more just. Right you know, omelet. But surprisingly, the, the, I've had some Bruneians reach out and say, your book's actually generating some interesting discussions. And in fact, um, I've now got an invitation to do a virtual panel with their tiny lit fest. But that's readers. Where agents are concerned, because of the nature of the Epigram Prize, um, once your book is with them, uh, they basically own the rights. So if mm -hmm. anything, it is Epigram that will then be right. working with agents to market your book uh, or okay. sell worldwide rights. Are you happy that you went that route as opposed to carrying on looking for an agent? Um, yes, because I have the attention span of a goldfish. Right. <laughs> I wanted to just be done with it. <laughs> and I was hoping that I could then just move on, right? Um, so I'm happy, of course. And I think um, because I won 
it's really been a leg up for me in terms of profile. I mean, I got invited now to the Ubud Writers Festival, the Georgetown Literary Festival. There was another one in Jakarta that I just did. You know, stuff like that. But I think that comes along with, you know, just winning an award, I suspect. I suspect. Uh, so that helps. I'm hoping that all this is, is just going to be, make it easier for me when I write my second book. What goes into your writing process? What was that like? I mean, 14 weeks. That's amazing at how quickly you churned it out. Is that because you had spent maybe years before already mulling it over in your head? Or was that just you gave yourself a chunk of time, sat down and wrote? So it was it was a few factors. Number one, the germ of, of book, right? The idea that I wanted to write a book about this issue uh, of race and identity, particularly Malay identity. Um, and this is what some people are surprised by when I tell them. I was like, the book is about Malay identity. I'm like, yeah, but the, the woman is Chinese. I said, yes, but if you really read the book, it's about Malay identity. Yeah. Um, and I like the fact that some people don't get it because then it's fine. You know, they're going to read it and it's just going to sit inside their, their heads. Um, but I had the idea of a Chinese woman becoming Malay already there. That, that's been around for about 10 plus years. And to be honest, I had maybe about six or 7,000 words um, uh, in the bag, which funnily enough, eventually did not make it into the book because oh. the, the, yeah, the initial parts were the, the bigger chunk of it was actually the voice of her mother, which if you've read the book is, is basically not there. Yes. Right? I've, I've removed the mother's voice completely. Um, but when I decided I wanted to write the book, I decided I need help. So I signed on for a course uh, at this website called The Novel Week, which is run by a lady called Louise Dean. She's a book along with author. Um, it's a fantastic community because she often has on their guest lecturers who are actual best-selling authors, you know, from all sorts of genres. Um, so you have exposure to that. You have exposure to her lectures where she sort of, you know, has something to say to you every day. I mean, these are pre-recorded, but still, you know, you, you can pace yourself. Um, so I just, I tried to write at least an hour a day. Um, I was probably about 80% successful. Some days I dropped out. Um, but there were days when I wrote a little bit longer, but I was very conscious of the of not sitting there too long, oh. right, and, and, and writing. Um, I think on a good day, maybe I would go up to 2,500 words or so, but not, not you know, most days I didn't. Why were, you, why were you conscious of the time? Was it, why would you want to limit it? Or is that because you just, if you sat, sat too long, you could sometimes maybe get lost in it where you, well, at least that happened to me, I would sit there, for eight hours and after a while I'm like I'm looking at the same sentence for eight hours and I'm like yeah yeah um I think putting a time limit gives you you know it, it kind of stops me from doing that right. and staring at it for eight but the other the other piece of advice I got from the from the course was this always leave something for tomorrow don't write till the end of of your idea for today do you know what I mean you you, you write a few scenes and if you know where it's going already if you know where the next scene is going to go stop there it, it makes sense to stop there because then the next day when you come to the page, you already know what you're going to do. And as you're doing that, you develop, you know, the next part and the next part and the next one. There were a couple junctures when I got stuck. Mm. Uh, I did get really stuck because I didn't, I went into it not knowing how the story is going to end, right? Ah. Uh, I went into it even not having a plot. Right. I just kind of knew she has a mother, she has a lover, but that was where it stopped. All the other characters just kind of appeared as I was exploring her world and her character. Uh, so those guys were all surprises to me. <laughs> it's actually good fun. So there were times when I was stuck because then I didn't know how this was going to end. 
I mean, I remember one one time in particular, I actually just kind of went for a swim. Right. <laughs> While I was swimming, it came to me and I was like, this is how I popped. I remember I just popped on the middle of the swimming pool. <laughs> the story's going to end. But yeah, I get that you're a very instinctive writer then. You're not one of those that sit down and I've heard some authors talk about how they very carefully plot every little thing. I'm guessing you're not like one of those. I think in the beginning I'm not, but uh, I know with my novel, as I got into it, I started trying to at least, you know, mark out certain things, like what the subplots were, where the midpoint was, you know, kind of the, the big beats of the story. Because then at least you know what you're writing towards. Otherwise, you're sort of writing into an abyss. Um, that doesn't mean that I didn't veer from those ideas. Things did change. There was, I was going one direction and I decided to drop it and I went in a, a different direction. But at every point when I take a decision to go a certain way, um, I then started looking to see whether I could stretch that out, you know, into a, a novel length. Um, and with my second book, that is kind of the approach I'm already taking going into the story, except that I've left it open-ended because I don't know what she's going to do next. I think beyond a certain point, it'll become clear <laughs> what the story is going to be. But at the moment, you know, there's everything from a pirate to her internet preaching husband to I don't know what else is in there. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I wonder if people think that authors are, are a bit nuts when we start talking about the voices in the head of the character. Oh, no, because my character was telling me this. And it's like, mm, okay, whatever you say. <laughs> like, Wait till they start catching you uh, talking to yourself. Oh, yeah. I don't know about you, but I talk to myself. Sometimes is it like you have whole dialogues, right? Number one, when you're writing dialogue, it is also easier when you talk it, I find, because then you can hear whether it sounds false or yes. stilted or unreal, you know, that's one. But also, a lot of times I have to talk through my thoughts. Yeah. You know, it's like I pretend I'm talking to somebody like you who's asking me certain questions about it. So I have to answer and then I go, oh, wait, hang on a minute. That doesn't make sense. That's true. Company, who, who else are you going to talk to when you're, you're writing? It's a solitary thing. It's not a team thing. You know, it's not a screenplay. Right. Where you lock five people up in a room. In a room. Exactly. Is that <laughs> a goal? Do you want to do that? Or have you done that? What, screen? Writing is, uh, yeah. I haven't. I've got a friend that's the, who is a film producer who's going, Karina, can you please write uh, for screen? Because there's a particular idea that I silly it. Silly enough, I opened my mouth and I discussed it with her. And she said, oh my God, this would be a great series. <laughs> Your writing is very sticky. That's how I like to call it. You know, it stays with you. And once you start, <laughs> it's like you just, it carries you along. Oh, thank you. So that's how, that's how I could, like, I don't know. I, somebody asked me, how's the book? And I said, it's sticky. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of those books. It's like sticky rice. It's like, it's, you just keep going. That's how I felt well, about it. I think there was part of me that was, I, I realized what kind of book it was turning into about one third into it. I realized, oh, this is, you know, I've written short fiction with, before, which is, I, I think, different because short fiction is a different format. And I always thought that that sort of style or tone would carry over into my novel. This is very different for me um, in terms of writing style. Yeah, this is a lot more immediate, a lot more plot driven, a lot more, you know, pacey. I didn't think I was capable of doing that. So it's it was interesting for me to discover where this thing was going. And at one point, I was like, hang on a minute, should I do it this way? But then I realized, okay, if I want a book that's going to be more widely read, this is the way to do it. So, you know, if this is the way it's coming out, just let it be and then see what happens later. 
once I finished the first draft, as they advised, walk away from it for two months or, or a month right. or something. And I, I did. Um, I peeped at it a couple of times. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Uh, but when I went back to work on it, I was like, no, you know, I, I, I think this works. So I, I left it pretty much structurally the way it was, with the exception of just taking out the mother's voice eventually. But the pacing was already there. What made um, you decide to take, just way- to take the mother's voice out, considering if you're looking at a ma- Malay woman and she was the one Malay woman, really, that we might have been able to hear from in the book? Um, I think the mother's voice was really just inserted as placeholders within mm-hmm. the book. Um, so her voice was not developed beyond, I mean, her first person voice uh, was not developed beyond the point when she gave her daughter away, um, you know, which which is what she did, which tried the daughter was raised by the grandmother, right? So uh, I did not develop it beyond that, as in like what happened to her after, you know, right. and all that, okay. which you find out secondhand from her daughter. Anyway. So my editor felt that a lot of the information that was in the mother's voice was already relayed in the plot. Um, right. So we took it out for efficiency, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Did your your has your family read the book? Two people. So I have I have a brother and a sister, and of course my parents. Right. And only two people actually have responded. Quite funny, my mother and my brother, which is really unusual because my brother's not usually that effusive. He actually wrote me a little text and say, "Oh, it was really excellent. I enjoyed the book." I said, "Wow!" And mom, of course, is going to be proud of you because she's my, you know, she's number right. one cheerleader. Has your writing style changed then since this book? you feel? Have you written anything since it, even for personal consumption? There's two ideas that I'm exploring. I was going down a particular track uh, at one point. Um, I wouldn't say the style has changed. I think the second one's even worse. (laughs) She's just, oh my God, she's a little out of hand. If people have a stereotype of what a virtuous hijabi woman is, she's probably not it. Uh, So I was trying to write a book about a woman who is hijabed and, and sort of a I guess kind of taking a stab at patriarchy and the patriarchal Muslim society in, in our country. But with all the stuff that's happening in Iran, I, I, you know, it's very difficult to detach yourself enough from it emotional, from the issue emotionally to, to be able to write about it. So I, I'm going to leave it be. I'm not sure, depending on how current affairs go, I'd really like to tackle that one. But it's just things right now are just too much. They're too much. Do you feel there are certain things that even fiction should stay away from for a little bit? Um, I think sometimes, uh, not not permanently, but maybe time or time can can help give you some distance because sometimes when you're writing in the moment, I think it's difficult. It's just like you know, during COVID, I saw a lot of discussions in in blogs and things about whether it was too soon to write about books set in the pandemic or about the pandemic, right? I mean, never mind the fact that there were people who were publishing novels prior to this about fictional pandemics. That's true. <laughs> you know, which then yeah. became almost prescient. And, you yes. know. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there is benefit in, in you know, distance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, at least for me. At least, yeah. yeah, exactly. For me, at least. And as part of that distance, staying away from readers' reviews online. I'm grateful for the number of people who have taken the time to contact me directly on social media and say hey I really like the book or hey it resonated I particularly like the fact that there are some people who have written back and said I feel like you've written about me mm-hmm. so because there are other people like me right in in the spectrum of Malena's I wrote this for those of us who are left out so yesterday when I was doing I think I was doing a panel in Jakarta I uh, know I was doing a panel for a lecture on post-colonial literature. And I said, the reason I wrote the book was because I needed to include, I wanted to, to make sure my story 
was included in the Malay narrative. The Malay narrative is missing stories of people like me. So this is what I'm doing. I'm I'm aggressively inserting my son to that canon. <laughs> Since recording this podcast, some good news from Karina Robles Barin. The accidental Malay has been picked up at the Frankfurt Book Fair by Picador UK and will be available there in the United Kingdom from 2024. Congratulations, Karina, and hold on to your seats, British readers. You've got a great new book headed your way. I'm Margot Ortigas. Again, thank you for joining us on About That, the podcast. <laughs>